welcome to another episode of the China Path podcast. James Scullin here from the Australia-China Business Council. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please drop by to the podcast homepage at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts to sign up on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or Yoku. From November 5 to 10 this year, Shanghai will host the inaugural China International Import Expo, or CIIE. Time to coincide with the 40th anniversary of China's reform and opening up, CIIE is China's new mega expo that aims to host 2,800 companies from 130 nations with over 160,000 Chinese buyers expected to attend. In addition to its size, CIIE is significant in signalling China's trade liberalisation and desire to continue to open up its markets to the world. With China becoming an increasingly competitive market, it's vital to understand how to make your products stand out and align with Chinese tastes. On this episode, we speak with Andrew Kuehler from the Silk Initiative in Shanghai about refining your long-term brand strategy in China. We discuss the Chinese consumers' evolving tastes, the central government's health targets, and considerations businesses need to take into account regarding the labelling, packaging and flavours of their products from a company with extensive China market experience, having worked with clients such as Arnott's, PepsiCo, Campbell's, Pizza Hut, McCain Foods and Brolos Lobsters. Andrew Kuehler is the founder and CEO of the Silk Initiative, China's only specialised food and beverage insights-driven brand consultancy. A native Australian, Andrew managed a global career where he quickly climbed the ladder of large agencies in Shanghai, New York and Sydney before carving out his own path with the launch of TSI. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here at the Silk Initiative offices in Shanghai with Andrew Coolier, CEO of Silk Initiative. Andrew, thanks for having me today. Thanks very much, James. Um, so, Andrew, what is the Silk Initiative and what are you exactly trying to do here in China? Well, we were founded um, just on four years ago when I was uh, back in Australia sort of reading through the announcement of the free trade agreement and mm. thought sort of how could I bring my global experience to help, at that time, Australian companies particularly. Um, work through what's required from a marketing perspective to make their brand successful in China. So ultimately, there's always been a bit of an altruistic purpose to the company, and at that stage, I just felt that you know some some agency or some consultancy particularly had to, I guess, try and take the high road with improving the food landscape in China. Okay. There were a lot of issues back then around supply chain, around safety. I myself had suffered from some of those issues mm. uh, when I moved back here eight years ago. So that's really where it started is trying to find companies that could improve the food landscape in China uh, and really the overall uh, experience for the Chinese consumer. Okay. So that is sort of what we're about. Uh, we talk about ourselves being the brand warrior for growth in China that has now extended onto Asia and also global work, so quite rapidly. So, you know, we started working with SMEs and then sort of worked up through some of the mid-size and even larger brands that Australia knows okay. um, that folks can find on our website and our various news items. And so yeah. all of your clients come from food predominantly? Uh, yep, food, food and beverage, packaged okay. goods, yep. I would say would be 80 to 80% of the briefs. Okay. And the rest right now would be uh, restaurant retail businesses, global brands coming into China. Uh, even uh, brands in Southeast Asia like Yum Brands, Pizza Hut, we okay. do work for those guys. Also agribusinesses. And what's been interesting, particularly in Australia, 
is that so many of those commodity providers are now thinking about, okay, how can they value add okay. to the Chinese market? So that's quite new for me and exciting as well. Mm. You'll have seen some of the work we've done for the likes sure. of Broloss, yeah. right? So how do you take those kind of, um, I'd say, more wholesale commodity products and turn them into a branded experience? What do you say to those who claim it's, it's too difficult or competitive to do business in China? You know, this is what I always hear about, um, you know, the opportunity in China is there's 1.3 or 1.5 billion Chinese consumers who are just going to gobble up my Australian products. Yep. Um, I think there's always a target market for everyone. It's just about where. Mm. Is that first tier? Is that second tier? Is that third tier? Um, it is highly competitive. Of course, it's highly competitive. But the purchasing power of Chinese consumers, particularly in the large growth regions along the eastern seaboard and places like Chengdu, even Changsha, is increasing. Mm. Um, they are evolving through brands and they want more experiences and better products. Yep. So I think there's plenty of room for everyone to have a piece of that pie. The challenge then becomes how do you find them? The first problem is literally just the lay of the land. Who's who? What competitors are there? What are their strategies to win? We talk about their keys to win, how they're actually succeeding. Mm. So really deconstructing that. Obviously, who is the target consumer? What's their profile? Uh, the clients that are a bit more serious will talk about that. Mm. Where does their product sit within their sort of various consumption occasions through the day? And then that's sort of like the consumer side of things. But then you've got the other practical side of things, the B2B aspects of are there retailers who would even bother to bring them on? Right. Are there distributors who can support that kind of product? We're sort of in that space where we're converging data and knowledge from both the consumer and the commercial side to try and find that out. So is there a particular Chinese target market that is interested in Australian products? Not really. I, I think it's the same answer to any any country, you know, like whether it's Canada or Australia or New Zealand or the US. But certainly middle class. Oh, yeah, of course, certainly middle class. I mean, mm. everyone wants to eat better and drink better and live better, right? Mm. Ideally, um, you know, the lower socioeconomics would like dumplings with better beef, you mm. know, um, or just a healthier product. But, of course, when we do our testing work, we're trying to go as broad as possible. Of course, you see when they're more expensive premium type, say, snacking products from Australia, it is the middle to upper class. I'd say now with the rising importance of health and wellness... We talk quite a lot about that. Australia has a great opportunity there. Mm. You know, we have been building brands and products in that space for the last 20, 25 years. So there's just so much experience there that we can bring to China. Mm. I think particularly even over the likes of the US or mm. in the UK. And there tends to be a very positive response from those middle to upper income consumers. How do you go about testing the market and getting to know the potential audience better? Yep. Well, there's various methods. Mm. It depends on like, you know, how long is a piece of string, how mm. long does the client have, what is their budget. <laughs> um, we have a solution that's called Space Definer that is the first part of our journey, okay. which is, as I said, getting the lay of the land. And that goes through th um, techniques like desk research, looking at e-commerce data from different providers. We'll do our own social media scrapes. Mm. We'll go out and interview people in their homes, do ethnography research. Okay. We'll do focus groups big quantitative studies, mm. we'll segment the, the market. That's kind of the unique skill set we have at TSI is okay. we all do come from insights backgrounds. Mm. But it's about like what do you do with the data to tell a story and a strategy. But at the end of the day, a client really needs to know what is the size of the prize. And most clients need a number behind that. Is it difficult to keep track of the Chinese consumer because they do tend to change their tastes and evolve so quickly? Yeah. Yep. 
Absolutely. Um, that's why we just chose to stay in the food and beverage space. So if you are a chocolate client coming to talk to us, we're going to have so many adjacent learnings that we're continually coming across, whether that be in confectionery or snacking okay. um, or other kind of adjacent categories. So I purposely chose to stay focused on food and beverage for that reason, that consumers are evolving through the space mm. so fast. And in China... You know, you snooze, you lose. And typically when we've done some of this work after one or even two years of work, the last step in our process is monitoring the consumer and the market. And really, if you're dedicated to a sustainable journey in China, monitoring, continuing to test and learn and starting the process again. Okay. It's not a static market. Whereas in Australia, we're relatively homogeneous, mm. right? So whether you work walking to a supermarket in Bundaberg or down to Ballarat, you're largely going to find the same products available. As, as consumers, we're, we're not moving through those social evolutions as rapidly as they are in China. So you mentioned health and wellbeing. Um, what other trends are you seeing with the Chinese consumer at the moment? There's actually um, two big pushes right now from the central government. One is called policy around um, doubling up on protein. Okay. Another one is around, um, around healthier consumption of grain-based products. Right. Both of them, the grain-based one is really about trying to get folks off um, complex carbohydrates, okay. refined flours, too yeah. much rice, yeah. because there is rising diabetes in China. Okay. So they're looking for people to consume lower GI type products. Okay. So any brand that has a portfolio that consists of healthier grain products right now tends to be doing well. Same on the protein space. If you look at all the scares around uh, animal proteins in the last 10 years, Yeah. You know, I talk about the protein crisis in China, consumers being starved for good, healthy, both animal protein and vegetable protein. Yeah. That's particularly a space that's really taking off. Right. And I think that's also why dairy has done so well. People looking for soluble type of protein, milk, yogurt particularly, uh, cheese has really taken off. So when you see the government set a goal like that, do you yeah. think that there's a trickle-down effect in China that will go down to the consumer when the government sets an objective like that? Uh, no, and this question keeps coming up. Um, we were at a meeting last week where the client asked that, you know, do, do consumers know about it? Not really. Okay. I think the, the brands that are really aware that are here on the ground listening are taking advantage of that. Okay. Some of our bigger global clients, which tend to be American, yep. <laughs> hear about these things and they are thinking about the future. They're saying, okay, Silk Initiative, can you create for us a five-year portfolio of snack brands so we can go up against our key competitor in the market? Those particular types of companies, I would say, they have their smarts about them. They're listening to what's going on. The average consumer is probably not seeing the immediate effect of it. But the government's listening. Mm. They're watching what's going on. Yep. They want to build stronger bones and stronger muscles in consumers. So they're thinking about what are the food types that can do that. Mm. And I think that is one of the challenges that I see now for brands from Australia coming into China is they probably just don't have their ear close enough to the ground about that. Okay. They're very caught up in what their product is. They're very caught up in what their brand is. But they don't really know where that sort of sits in the market in terms of policy push yep. or actual the evolution of consumer needs. To what degree does an Australian company need to transform their product to cater to Chinese tastes in the China market without losing the integrity of being that premium Australian product? Is that something you find difficult to grapple with, with clients? Originally I thought so. I think I've changed my thinking on that a bit as well. Yeah. I think when it comes down to product formulation or the characteristics of products... Uh, consumers like a good product story, right? They, they are expecting that countries like Australia are putting the right amount of R&D and thinking through supply chain and sourcing yep. of ingredients to make a, a superior product. Okay. 
Most certainly more so than you would see if you walked into a convenience store here and you see quite a few products that are pretty crappy, to mm. be honest, you know, mm. highly processed. I think now it's more about how do you tell a story, a brand story? How do you get your proposition right so the consumer goes, okay, I get it. I get what that product's doing for me, both functionally and probably emotionally. Okay. And that's probably where the gap, I think, in is of knowledge, you know. It's not so much that you need to switch out so much of your product anymore, particularly in the large cities, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, even the likes of Changsha, Wuhan. They're really willing to experiment with most things. Okay. But you need to be able to ladder up quickly to an emotional benefit so that they understand the role and the purpose of the brand in their life, what is the job that the product is doing to help them achieve that. Yep. And that's what we talk about now. And whether that's developing brands in Australia or developing brands in the US or, or China, now particularly we're in the age of brands need to have a sense of purpose around them. They need to be purposeful and intentional about what they're trying to achieve. Mm. And the Chinese consumer is no different than the Australian consumer. Mm. Whether or not they're at the early stages of health or wellness or later, they're wanting a brand to say to them, you know, this is what I can actually do for you to help you achieve your goals okay. in life. Is an online strategy essential for telling that brand story? Um, no, I don't think so. That's part of it. Okay. You know, I think in our experience in the strategy work we do, we are not digital experts or execution experts. There are partners we'll send that work to. Yep. But it depends on sort of like what is your mixed communication strategy. Okay. Really, online is obviously part of that. The younger you go with younger cohorts, they want to connect digitally and socially. A few years ago, it was all about Weibo, then it became WeChat, then it became KOLs, now it's live streaming, yeah. you know, mini programs. That whole digital and social space is constantly evolving. It's very fluid. No one's really nailed it, from yeah. what I can see. It's okay. very expensive, but that's just part of it. There's still the touch point in, in store, at the shelf as well. Most clients are still moving the largest volumes through brick and mortar, right? Not through e-com. Okay. But we're seeing, you know, the, the online, the offline worlds merging and converging right now. So you do have to have a mixed strategy. Thinking of language, um, what do you need to take into account when translating a Western brand name or Western language into Mandarin for products here? Well, the first question is, do consumers even care? Right. Sometimes they don't. Okay. Uh, we've done work, um, Brolos we talked about. Yep. You know, that's probably not the easiest word to pronounce, but for a very premium lobster consumer who's looking to pay a thousand RMB for a kilogram lobster, their English is probably pretty good. Mm. Or they'd find it more aspirational to only buy a product with an English name. Right. Okay. In that particular case, and those folks will tell you, we did a, pe a large piece of naming work for them did an online screen of consumers in different cities and actually found some nice names in Chinese, but we ended up using those as strap lines or taglines okay. for brand communication. Well, like the Tim Tams is a great example. Mm. We went through a creative naming development piece with those guys using our strategists and researchers and copywriters, and I think we came up with about 25 names, and it was pretty divided down the middle. They are going for still a mass consumer, Okay. but Tim Tam is pretty easy to say. Right. But it was more so that that particular brand needed a Chinese name for searchability online. When consumers are trying to look for a product or a new product, they'll want to enter a Chinese actual name online. Okay. So it just depends. But typically what we're finding across categories, the more, the more sophisticated the consumer, the more premium the category, the less likelihood uh, that you, you need a, name, a Chinese name. Because surely a lot of these products, there's a status value in consumers buying them and of course. a lot of that status would be in the English language of That's the product. Right. Exactly. And people look it up. 
Mm. Right? So even if you look at the construct of pointing over here to the Tim Tam pack in the office, yep. the Tim Tam logo, and folks listening to the podcast can look that up, you'll see that they have uh, created a typeface font for Chinese that probably sits only in about 20% of the total space of the logo guardrail on the top right-hand corner. Right, so yes, front and centre is Tim Tam in English in the original guardrail. Yeah. That, in, again, is very intentional because consumers will also now jump online and do their research. Who is Tim Tam? Right. Where is the Tim Tam brand from? Yeah. They'll start to look at the Australian credentials online. They'll even look for things like price parity. Okay. Are they being ripped off? Oh, right. Okay. Right? So that's also really important too. When you think of naming, it's just not about the name in isolation. It's what do people do with that? Now, looking at that Tim Tam packet over across the room, I see a, a kangaroo in the top yes, right corner. Yep. Um, how essential is Australian symbolism? It's pretty important still. Okay. I think, though, our techniques and how we go about measuring that and what we put in front of consumers, like we, we come up with different stimulus, design stimulus, either for our designers or the client's designers. How you get the message across is evolving. Mm. It's no longer really just about an, an Australian flag or a kangaroo. It's sort of like the design and the lockup of that on the package that has to stand out. Typically, what we find is it has to be wrapped around a key claim. What is the number one key claim in the, in the instance of Tim Tam? The kangaroo around it has written Australia's most beloved brand. So that's the key point, the key claim for the brand, right? We have seen some pushback around the use of Australian flags on products. From consumers? consumers yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, feeling it's a little bit too political oh, right. to talk about. Okay. Or maybe just a bit too in people's faces. Okay. And... Uh, even among millennials who have really bought into the China dream, you'd be surprised that there is quite a strong national sentiment. Mm. And so there should be a pride in what China is trying to achieve. Sure. So I think we've moved through that pretty quick, that you don't really have to push into people's faces that it is Australian. Mm. They'll quickly find that out through the packaging design with the iconography or the romance copy on the side of the package, whatever it might be. I was speaking with businesses at CL yesterday and, and they were talking about the benefit of their products being connected to Australia and Australia having that clean and green image. Yeah. And I think a lot of people talk about clean and green as being a somewhat tired idea that's been pushed for Australia for decades, but it's still obviously quite important for Australian businesses. Do you think clean and green needs to be sold better? Yeah, um, we just did some really interesting work in, in the wellness, health and wellness space, actually supplement space, and a really interesting learning there is that stories around clean and green, they have to be backed up by some evidence. Right? Oh, so it's okay. no longer just say it's clean and green. Okay, then how am I more clean and green? Oh, right, okay. What am I doing in terms of my manufacturing? Yeah. What am I doing in terms of reputation management? Where am I sourcing my ingredients from? Okay, so if I really have some proof points about sourcing the cleanest and best and purest ingredients, functional ingredients, then that's a great story. Okay. Even Australian brands are saying, okay, we're, we're you know, adding green tea to our products or goji berries or wolf berry or something like that. Chinese are actually really receptive to that. If you're just sourcing a much better ingredient than they can come across themselves, that is really believable. I yeah. think that's way more believable than just clean and green. Because the Americans talk about that. Okay. You know, the Europeans do, the Canadians. Yeah. It's not a single story that only Australians own. With regards to packaging, um, mm. is there a particular way goods need to be packaged to appeal to the China market? Yeah, there is. And um, I would say this is just certainly something you don't want to skip through. It takes time. The aesthetics and the semiotics, and so the use of colours and shapes and symbols is very, very different for China. Mm. Uh, for our more serious clients, we spend quite a deal of time working through that. And that can often just start with a review of what's happening in the category on the retail space, 
or now in the e-com space, if everyone's in blue, do you want to be in blue, right? Mm. Even though your brand at home might be. What other things can you do to stand out? Maybe if you can't deviate from a colour perspective, you could from a function and form perspective. So there's two aspects to packaging, right? There's the design and there's the function and the form. Function and form is becoming more important here. Consumers want to be, they want quite an immersive user experience. So they want interesting lid technologies and different types of packaging. So packaging is an important part, also particularly to protect the product. Proof that you're really thinking about the Chinese consumer. Tim Tams is a great example. It in Australia is in a plastic tray. In China, it's in a there are individually wrapped Tim Tams actually oh, to protect right. each of the Tim Tam. Really? Okay. Because actually the big um, implication there from the findings from research was that consumers want to gift one Tim Tam at a time to oh. a friend or a mate. It's that sharing culture. Sharing culture. Mm. Actually, the whole brand proposition is wrapped up around sharing. That's a social currency to be able to share something nice like that with your best mates. Mm. Um, but then it's packed in a, the outer cartons of box. Okay. And there's some practical reasons for that. When we looked at the biggest competitors to Tim Tams, they're also all in a box in the supermarket. Mm. And a box that stands up at the shelf gives you much better shelf-facing visibility. If you brought the flat pack plastic tray in from Australia and put it on a shelf in Australia, you'd be lost at the shelf. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it's not just about you know the, the visual aspects. It could be about product protection. Yep. It could be about things like sharing. Mm. If that's really important, then how does that make its way through the packaging? If you've been through a Chinese supermarket when they're stocking the shelves at any time of the day, you'll see that they, there's, there's a lot of damage that is incurred with products in terms of how they're handled in the supermarket, mm. thrown on the floor and roughly packed onto the shelf. Yeah, right. So sometimes you just have to think about that, right? If you've got a highly perishable product, mm. how do you package that? Previously, you mentioned um, Brawlers, who were uh, a guest on the podcast a few months back, yeah. the Geraldton Fishman's Co-op. How did you go about assisting them getting lobsters over here to China? Um, so quite a long journey, and that was just such a wonderful experience, actually, because we got a call out of the blue from, from Matt Rutter, who's a CEO now, and uh, he asked me if we would be interested in helping them on that journey to create a retail brand. So the process I talked about before, which now is seven steps, they kind of got that in, in several engagements with us, but literally it was starting from the basics. How could we even create a branded proposition for retail? Mm. It quickly turned to an online strategy, actually, for various reasons. Um, but going through all the, the quintessential FMCG approaches to marketing development, you know, why would consumers adopt it? What were their, their barriers to adoption? How would they use it? We found out just a lot about the consumer experience. They didn't know how to kill and process the lobster once they got it. Oh, right. Okay. They certainly knew how to cook a really great lobster dish. Yep. Chinese are wonderful cooks when it comes to seafood. Could you, could you explain uh, the, the package you came up with for the lobster? Yeah. So, so what does someone receive when they receive a Brolos lobster here in China? So they receive online, if they go to jd.com and order a Brolos lobster, they will receive a box that has the lobster inside a polystyrene box that's packed in wood wool or shavings yep. with a net around it. And then inside the lid, there's a product usage brochure that incorporates all of those insights we came across. Mm. So we visualised all that. And then the outer carton is a really beautiful, clean and green, actually, image of a lobster coming off the, at, straight out of the ocean into the, into the trawler. And that's what they get with instructions and so forth. And it's hand-delivered by a JD.com representative. And so I saw that a, a customer also has gloves that they can put on as they're handling the lobster? Yeah, exactly. I forgot to miss that point. So that was one of the key things, right? This, this handling of the lobster when it comes out of the box. You know, people are really worried about cutting up their hands because of the rough shell of the lobster. Yeah. So there was quite a lot, actually, that was built around this user experience. Mm. Again, that's a very premium Chinese consumer that's going to buy that. They're expecting that the lobster is in pristine condition when it arrives. So it has to be protected through 
transportation. Yeah. And they would be coming from holding tanks in Guangzhou straight to their door. So there's a lot actually involved in the logistics of that, right? It's a very perishable product. And you, you also have a vial of water from the Indian Ocean? Yeah, I've got to check whether they're actually still doing with that. But that was one of the brain activation ideas, right? That they, they actually incorporate some water from the from the ocean where the product come from, which is a great idea. But I think that's something that the Chinese consumer celebrates a lot more than the Australian consumer, that yeah. experience of, you know, yeah. all those little added values with a product. Yeah, well, that was actually about, you know, the, the final concept that we created and tested, and we tested many different routes for the brand. At the end of the day, people just wanted the purest seafood experience straight mm. from the Indian Ocean of Australia. Mm. So how do you bring that to life for people? Yeah. And it was actually really about a mental transportation, taking the consumer that mental transportation to think about, oh, wow, where did this lobster come from? Mm. This came straight out of that water. Here's some of that water that I'm having in China. It's the little things that in Australia we wouldn't think too much about sure. yeah. that can be a big deal in China because mm. no one else is doing it. Yeah. And Brodos was the first. The Canadians were here. Boston Lobster was here. But I would say in their marketing activation, they hadn't done a great job. Okay. Even down to things like on their company websites, they had YouTube videos. Mm. People can't, can't access YouTube here because of VPNs. So there's some barriers there that, that the brand put forward to consumers, which didn't really help them think about how do you get them to adopt it pretty quickly. So you mentioned that people buy the lobster via JD.com. Is, is, is that a service that the Silk Initiative offer to register a company with JD.com and provide that connection to Chinese customers? We are now on the sort of back end of our service for launch. We have a solution called Launchpad. Mm. Uh, we'll provide either test marketing uh, solutions or solutions where we're helping clients find the right retailer or distributor partner. Mm. And the idea there is that all of the work that we've done, the insight through the strategy and planning, the creation of the design, that all really should inform the type of partners you go with. So in an ideal world, we've had a client who hasn't started those discussions yet. Okay. There's different partners. They can wait for the strategy to be done. And then that should really inform who's your best partner to take you forward. Mm. Uh, but no, we don't do things like, you know, set up of WeChat groups and business registration. There are so many partners in China that, that do that, that are expert at that. And they do that really well. Because we are in the food and beverage space and we're very, very connected because that's all we do. Mm. And if you think about the value of that, whether you are a small SME from Australia or whether it's Campbell's or Pepsi that we're working with here, there's a huge network there. So, Andrew, the Silk Initiative is an Asia gateway voucher provider through the Victorian government's voucher program scheme. Um, would you be able to tell listeners what that offers? It's a great program, and that essentially offers um, companies that are of a smaller, medium size, ideally, co-fund their work around the type of work we do to help them succeed in China and across Asia, actually. We're actually approved for nine Asian countries, mm, okay. so not just China. So a country, you know, a company might have a strategy for Southeast Asia. We could help with that. So it's really to try and just make it much easier for them because it isn't cheap always doing this kind of strategic work. But they, the government will fund um, dollar for dollar up to $50,000. So a $100,000 engagement, which is a pretty chunky piece of work, yeah. would cost half that to the actual brand owner. And it runs between now through to the end of 2019. Okay. They've just gone through the first wave of applications. One of our Melbourne-based clients was awarded that voucher. They're actually here tomorrow morning in the room to talk about the next step of the work. Oh, so they fantastic. paid for the first step of the work themselves. Now they've got the voucher for stage two. So it is working already. And we are trying to actively push other Victorian-based companies that we haven't worked with yet that we know 
to really take full advantage of that. Mm. So, Andrew, what do you see your business going in the future and what are you looking forward to? Uh, global domination in the food and <laughs> beverage brand consulting space. Uh, I mean, literally, we have a very aggressive um, path to growth. Mm. You'll see some of the mural work here in the office that talks very much about our growth mindset and what we're trying to do. We started, as I said, with this altruistic view of improving the food landscape in China. And very quickly, we've had clients from Europe, UK, North America start to adopt our approaches for other regions. Mm. And, and that's happened much faster than I thought. Um, obviously, I would love it one day if we had offices in other parts of the world. I'm a frequent traveller to Australia. Mm. I'd love a full-time role from the company one day for me to be down there as well. Mm. Um, but really, I, my ultimate game is that you know every food and beverage company in the world knows about t- TSI and what we do. Mm. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks for having me today, Andrew, and all the best with Silk Initiative in the future. Thanks very much, James. My thanks to Andrew for having me at the TSI offices back in May. Now, if you're attending CIIE, Andrew and TSI will be hosting an event in Shanghai on the 8th of November on how to leverage any new leads CIIE may present to you. For more information, you can visit this episode's show notes at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts, where you can find out more about Andrew and the TSI team. There you can also check out past episodes of the podcast and subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or Yoku. Please do pass on the podcast to a friend, colleague or client who has an interest in China and may benefit from one of our episodes. And if you have a chance to leave a review on the iTunes store, that would be also greatly appreciated. We'd also like to thank the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's Australia-China Council for their support of the podcast. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, Zai Jian. <laughs>